Alright guys, welcome to the Goss. What's going on? What's the Goss? What's the news? Today I sit down with my dad and we talk about what's going on in Australia as well as in other places in the world. The whole point of these episodes, guys, is to get us to talk about a range of different topics as well as a bunch of different topics that are relevant to your life, that are in the news, that you can hopefully read about, learn about and form your own opinions about these topics and then go off and talk about them in your day-to-day life. So, today we talk about African black rhino numbers on the rise again because conservationists are working hard. We talk about how winemakers in Australia are salvaging smoke-tainted grapes this year after the worst bushfire season in Australian history. So, these grapes have been affected by the smoke from the fires, but Australian winemakers are being very creative in order to save this wine vintage. Then we get on to talk about desert frogs and how there are hundreds of thousands of frogs in the desert and their relationship with water. And we also talk about the Lake Air Basin in Australia and why that is such an interesting ecosystem. And then lastly, we talk about the trade in fake orphans in third world countries and sort of the ethics of Western countries like Australia giving money to charities that support this sort of stuff. Don't forget, if you want the transcripts, if you want the MP3s, if you want the full episode videos and everything like that, make sure to sign up for the premium podcast or the academy memberships at aussieenglish.com.au. And without any further ado, guys, let's get into this episode. Smack the kookaburra on the bum. Let's begin. So, African black rhino numbers are now on the rise Yay, after efforts woo-hoo. from conservationists have paid off. So southern black rhinos having the northern black rhino gone extinct. Yeah. Well, that's the, mm. the, sad, the sad aspect. But numbers have increased by nearly 800 over six years. Yeah. I had no idea that they had that kind of reproductive power. Yeah. Rhinos, man. Yeah. Um, so, annual growth rate of 2.5% from 2012 to 2018, and they've grown from 4,800 to 5,600. They were nearly driven to extinction by poaching, and to save the species, animals are being relocated from now established populations to new areas um, to increase the species range and also avoid interbreeding. But they're having trouble. I think they've, they've moved 11 black rhinos to Kenya's Tsavo um, East National Park from Nairobi, but all 11 died because they were drinking salty water yeah. and a lion killed one. So... Poachers are targeting these for their horns, obviously, which are demanded in Asia, uh, and the price will remain high whilst the demand's there. And poaching, though, is on the decrease. They killed 1,300 of them in 2015 and only 900, only 900 in 2018. Mm. So, I guess um, as numbers increase, where do you put these animals, right? So, even if they were to now explode the population, what do you do in terms of where to put them? Um, well, there's plenty of places now. This is speaking without any experience whatsoever because I've never been to East in Africa. Black rhino black conservation. Rhino conservation <laughs> or in just you know, the general environment in East Africa. But there's plenty of places that they used to be in yep. that actually haven't changed. It's not like we have a human population boom that is suddenly building you know, villages and towns in 
eastern Kenya or in Tanzania and so on that um, that we you know we we suddenly go oh sorry we're going to move this town out of here and create more open range area for for rhinos so I think there are plenty of places where they used to be that they could they will still naturally increase the the challenge we have when poaching is the major form of death is that we don't know what the carrying capacity of that country is for those animals if we didn't have humans as their effectively their only predator because yeah you could have a lion that catches the odd one but it's a that'll be a young one you know, mm-hmm. there's no way a three-ton rhino is going to get taken by a lion the lion's not even going to try um, <laughs> let alone let alone try let alone compete pretty brave lion. they're going to do a fair bit of damage but you know but um but so we don't know what that carrying capacity is which means that we don't know whether or not that country will handle them. You've got to assume that it was okay 200 years ago, um, and it probably still is, but we don't know. And that's the big challenge we have. Of If we're going to reduce poaching, ho- hopefully and ideally to zero, uh, then what does that mean? And it might not be where do we put them. It might mean that we just put down... It's not like these national parks in East Africa have got great big fences around them and said, look, you know, we put your little rhino herd over here. You've got to stay there. They'll go wherever they like. Um, and so... <laughs> you don't tell rhinos what to do. Exactly. Uh, he's a pretty good wall that you've got to build. Uh, yeah, have you been to the zoo? Rhinos don't swim very well, so <laughs> yeah. putting a river in there is, is okay. But, uh, yeah, so uh, I think we'll find a way of having that natural you know, population control. Uh, if it's allowed to happen, but yeah, it's again, it's a complex issue uh, because if we then start having, yeah, if we double the number of rhinos, does that have any effect on humans? Yeah, and if humans are the ones who are directly saying we're going to increase the number of rhinos, then they're doing it at the expense of other humans. Then you've got to start to question why. Uh, what's more important, a rhino's life or a human's life? Uh, it comes back, though, too surely to finding an economic reason to have the rhinos. Mm. So you have to go to these countries and foster the, the well, economics of it, whether it's tourism or even if you were to, say, farm the rhinos, which is probably pretty com- controversial, but at least then you have a reason to keep them alive and money that can be spent um, mm. maintaining their populations. And you would imagine if you were farming them, you could just chop the horns off when they're Well, that's what, that's what one of the early <laughs> strategies was for uh, reducing poaching was... Um, Rangers were actually removing horns yeah. from rhinos so that you know people wouldn't be out shooting them because there's no reason to. But it's pretty annoying, but- isn't it? Because it's almost like putting bigger locks on your doors because there's heaps of thieves and the police just can't be screwed taking care of the thieves. Yeah. You kind of like... Exactly. But that was one of the strategies and apparently it worked reasonably well. So at least in the early stages, we were allowing those rhinos to get to reproductive age and yeah. reproducing rather than killing them off as soon as the horn was big enough. Um, so, you know, there's a bunch of those things that are, you know, sitting in the background and, you know, challenges for it. Um, but what was your original question? <laughs> I guess, yeah, there wasn't one. We were sort of no. just talking about it. But why why are animals like these poached so heavily in Africa? Do you think that it's a combination of things like corruption, um, you know, the, the state of the economies over there, as well as this pressure from Southeast Asia mainly? Well, it's pressure from, from Asia. From Asia. Um, you know, when you've got one culture that is willing to pay huge amounts of money for a substance, whether it be you know, taking heroin or cocaine it is from interesting. Colombia. In America, that's cocaine, and exactly. in China, it seems to be if, parts of animals Or if it's taking are... you know, rhino horns and tiger's testicles. Yeah. Um, and then there's a motivation for people to go and do it. And yeah. it's not like we have uh, people from Hong Kong travelling to Kenya to shoot 
these uh, rhinos and taking the horn and travelling back. It's local people in Kenya who are doing it. Yeah. They have a um, a social economic motivation to do it. These are people who are extremely poor, and if they can make money by doing something, it's illegal. Hell, we've got crime here. We have people who will break into houses and steal things. It's uh, weird, in isn't it? Melbourne, so. in, in Africa, I've heard that a lot of the time the poachers are actually the protectors of the animals when there's money to protect them. But when they lose their jobs, they turn to poaching because, hey, I need money to feed my family. Yeah, and guess what? And I know the animals. the animals and where they are. Yeah, and, yeah, so it's almost like, you know, make sure you pay the police or they'll start robbing you. Yeah. yeah. But, but do you think it's more effective to try and tackle this top down or bottom up? I where think the only way it'll work is both. Yeah. Um, so, I, you try and lift up and give jobs to people in Africa and make right. it so that they don't have to rely yes. on money from Asia to yeah. do this. But then you need to also educate people in Asia and mm. suggest or show them that this, the damage it's doing and the fact that it's probably not helping you maintain an erection to do lines it, of it, not probably. shredded up. There is um, absolutely zero. <laughs> you might as well chew yeah. your own fingernails because guess what? It's, it's the, the same, same stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, really sad, yeah. but- I, I hope that we, we stop it eventually, you know, yeah. but I think it is. It, the tragic thing might be that you, you need to work out a way of working the rhinos into the and, economy. Yeah, you do. And there's, there's a lot of that going on in um, certainly South Africa, Southern Africa and East Africa, not just the country, South Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in those countries where, and it's not just rhinos, it's elephants um, as well where part of the solution is to remove the socioeconomic motivation for people to commit those crimes. Yeah. Um, and so there is you know, tourism. Tourism is a huge industry in those areas, particularly in you know, poor East African countries. Um, yeah, almost the only thing they have going for them is wealthy Western people wanting to pay a lot of money to go and see these animals. Yeah. So it is in their interest to do that. Well, so, until they get a shitload of mines set up to start stripping all of the uranium and well, iron yes. and whatever else they have there yeah. under the soil, right? Yeah, exactly. I was talking to Kel about this recently, and I'm, I'm sure it'll interest a lot of the listeners. I don't know how much you know of it, but what do you think it is? I, I've been sort of beating my head against the wall in terms of the corruption in Brazil and South America more broadly. We've been watching the TV show Narcos recently. Mm -hmm. So, that's on that's the Colombian Mexico. drug war, but the most recent one's on Mexico. And, you know, they started with cannabis and then they started getting into cahoots with the Colombians to move the cocaine through Mexico into America. But, but sort of more broadly than that, why... Are these countries so corrupt when America and Canada are arguably, you know, of the same age, they've come from very similar cultures that colonised those countries, they've had very similar histories in terms of the colonisation, the same with even Australia and New Zealand, there's, there've been, you know, Indigenous people here, there's lots of resources. How come we end up with countries like Brazil, which is about the same size, if not bigger than America? probably more fertile and more able to create wealth in the position it is when it's uh, of an even older age than America. What mm. is it? When it has a Western-ish government, why do certain countries like that maintain such high levels of corruption, whereas others don't? Because you can imagine, sorry to make it such a long question. <laughs> it's going to be an easy answer. But Australia wasn't always you know, as anti-corrupt as we are. We still have levels of corruption, but you can imagine a few hundred years ago, we were probably just as corrupt as any other country in the world in terms of having the upper class and the lower class, you know, at heads and the upper class doing whatever they want. The same with Britain, for sure, mm. right, in terms of corruption. You know, I was reading about the First Fleet and you, you learn about so much shit going on behind the scenes. 
But how did we pull ourselves out of that? And why haven't countries like those in South America maintained that same you know, level with us, mm. in, in your opinion? I don't know. <laughs> you heard it here first. Um, look, and and that, I mean, that sounds like a flippant response, but it's, it, obviously it's a highly complex anthropological question. I'm sure there are probably hundreds of PhDs that have been written by sociologists and anthropologists on this, and I haven't read any of them, so I'm, I don't know. Yeah, right. And it's a really difficult one to answer. There's... I and you can't sort of nail anything, and we talked about this last week. So I've I've done a little bit of thinking about it, and I still haven't come up with an answer. Um, but you can't even look at anything else that you would think might be a uh, other than um, purely uh, socioeconomic. Poorer countries tend to be more corrupt. Yeah, yeah. On average, uh, if you're a highly wealthy country where every one of your citizens is well off. There aren't many of them. There's a few. Uh, then there's virtually no corruption, uh, and you could put most of the countries that you've mentioned in there uh, into that category. So, um, when you have a large proportion of the population that are poor, there's more motivation on them to be involved in crime, and therefore there is more motivation for people who are wealthy to start running crime and discriminate against the lower classes right maybe to- discriminate against them but but also to manipulate them yeah yeah you know, there aren't too many you know drug lords who are out shooting people in the street they get other people they get other it. people to do it for them because they pay them a lot of money so in comparison you, to what that person can earn do you think as a cab driver in bogota in colombia do, you, do you think some so. of the biggest issues are that the People in Australia, for instance, you could probably be born to one of the poorest families here, but the government effectively guarantees you a right to get educated. Yes. And you can pull you yourself out of that situation. And you've got access to infrastructure. You know, yeah. Yeah. You can live in, you can live in the, the poorest, most isolated place in Australia. There will still be roads in and out. Yeah. Um, you will still have access to healthcare. In fact, if you need a doctor, they'll fly in for you. Um, yeah, there will be schools that you're available for. Even if you can't get them, then there's the old school of the air where, you know, back in the old days, you'd get on a radio and get yeah. your education from yeah, remotely from a teacher that way. So Australia and many other countries have, have effectively set up well for even the, the people who are their poorest. In developing countries, what we used to call back in the olden days, third world countries, I never knew understood what the second world was. That's but- what I was going to ask. We first world and third, where's third the world, second? Yeah, the, sec- the second was the sort of step to the first, but I think the step was either via corruption or whatever else. But um, but those countries that have a significant you know, proportion of their population being you know, poor, I think there is that's one element to it. But there's almost nothing else because you could look at Brazil has a highly sophisticated um, democratic system. It's one of the only countries in the world like Australia that has compulsory voting. Yeah. Um, it's got, and so you look at it and go on that basis. Well, it's not an, an electoral system. It's not like their democracy doesn't work. But corrupt people tend to get elected. How are they getting elected? It's not the system that's the problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are plenty of countries in the world where yeah, there isn't that sort of democracy and corrupt people get into power purely just by demanding it. Well, um, I guess the easiest thing is to see how it, it continues, right? Because you get into a corrupt government, then there's going to be a lot of pressure on you to maintain that corruption. Because yeah. you don't want to be the one that says, how about we start doing things the right way? Because you'll be... Yeah, you know, and killed. you're also probably got there by the fact that you're making a lot of money out of the corruption. So, so, how did countries like Australia become or lose so much of that corruption? Were there things that I we did we in our past? Well, we did. Um, 
if you look at one of your relatives and one of mine, um, William Bly, who was the fifth, I think, governor of New South Wales. Yay! Uh, yay, there so we go. Another he, one of my books. Yeah. He, he was actually a, a relative. Yeah, yeah. I Not directly. That. We're related to his wife. Oh, okay. Um, but... We're the same race as him. The yeah. same race as him. Yeah. <laughs> He's English. We, yeah, we, 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 we walk on two legs. That's it. Um, he effectively got overthrown as the governor. Didn't because- he hide behind his bed and get oh, dragged yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, allegedly. Um, and, you know, who, who knows, you know, in the early 19th century, yeah, there weren't yeah, there were newspapers. The victors write yeah, the, the, the history, write, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you're always going to make the person look worse than they actually were. Apparently, he was dragged kicking and screaming out from under his uh, bed under where his he'd bed. been hiding. Yeah. Yeah. And look, at the time, Government House was not this huge multi-storey mansion with a brick wall around it and security guards. It was just a house on a hill. With a front Door. Uh, with the front door. And so you knock on the door and say, come on, Will, you're out of here. Yeah. Uh, so he got overthrown yeah. and he was one of the more corrupt ones. Was uh, that the Rum Rebellion? The Rum Rebellion. We can probably yeah, talk about yeah. this later. Oh, yeah, that's another. That's not news. But effectively, could, back, do another back in the colony, the, they were being paid in rum, right? Well, there rum was no became money in the, the currency. currency. The currency yeah. was grog, was, yeah. was booze. And it really wasn't alcoholic rum drinks. As, as we understand it. No, it was, watered down yeah. crap. Yeah, yeah. basically <laughs> it was alcohol. Because you could make it really easily and yeah. you could import stuff to make it really easily. You couldn't grow much your own. But mm-hmm. um, So, yeah, there was a shift in power. Um, and so there was a, it was effectively a military coup. Yeah, which is the only one in our history, apparently. It is. Yes. Um, and so I think very early on, um, we had that situation of having um, either by stealth, as in just political manoeuvring to get rid of people who were corrupt, or we had in that one case where Bly got thrown out, literally drag kicking and screaming out of under his bed and thrown out. Um, and obviously that was you know, when we had you know, probably 10,000 people in Australia. I don't know what the actual numbers were. I'd be very surprised if it was more than 25,000 yeah. uh, in what we now call Australia. Uh, so it really was a few people in you know, wealthy people and a few of the military just saying, look, this is ridiculous. So Get it's almost it. like you uh, need it to have happened in the you did, early yeah. stages. How do you, you know, and look, I'll be completely political at the moment. How do you get rid of Donald Trump? Yeah. Yeah, because well, shoot him, right? Yeah. Well, you know, and I'm not recommending crime as a solution. But, yeah. But, what else do you do? But he didn't get the votes to get into where he got. You know, he manipulated by, the system. Yeah, he He's- got in by manipulating the system. Um, and once you're in, it becomes that. Yeah, you know, certainly in the United States, even in Australia, uh, you know, I think our current prime minister is incompetent. Yeah, um, and that's got nothing to do with which side of politics he sits on. Well, he's just he a is, muppet. He's an idiot. He is simply yeah. unable to make decisions now. Um, when we're in a health crisis around the world, um, our country is being run by the Premier of Victoria and the Premier of New South Wales. Yeah, because they are just saying, no, you, you know, I don't care what Australia says. We're going to do this now, and then the rest yeah. of Australia follows suit. Um, and that's a sad place to be in. But our constitution has no way of, as a country, us getting rid of them. There's only one person in this country that can get rid of the Prime Minister. Governor-General. The Governor-General. And he's done it once. Yeah, the Bit governor, more yeah. history for you guys. Oh, yeah, we'll do that one one day. And I lived through that. that yeah. Was, yeah my do you want to just drop was... drop the names quickly and the, the nutshell review of what happened? Oh, uh, we, we'll do another se- episode <laughs> on this one. But, yeah, look, in... 1972, a Labor government had been elected, having been out of power for more than a decade, uh, and they got elected on the a whole lot of social reform that they that needed to happen. 
Um, and their catch cry was, it's time yep. uh, that we have to get in. And so this was Gough Whitlam. This is Gough Whitlam, who, yep. who was the leader of the opposition. He became uh, the, the prime minister. Within three years, he had made a lot of those changes, huge changes, that many of which, like Medicare, you know, universal health care for Australians. Was he the one who um, brought through um, free tertiary education free tertiary for education your generation? For my generation. Yeah, dad and mum um, went through university yeah. without paying well, I was a dime. on a scholarship, so I would have got it anyway. <laughs> uh, but, but uh, yeah, we, you know, my generation went through anybody who, was, who had the – and it was competitive, so it wasn't just everybody went to university, which it effectively is now. Mm. Um, but if you had the scores to get yep. into – to what were effectively capped numbers in any course, mm. uh, you could go for free. Um, and so that came in. He got us out of the Vietnam War. There's a whole bunch of those things. In the end, um, he was borrowing a lot of money from overseas to do it. And the opposition uh, went to the Governor-General and said, we don't believe that we think this is unstable economically and we want to get rid of him. And the Governor-General Agreed, and sacked. You know, to sack the prime minister, he had permission, right, from the queen. Effectively, yeah, he he has to actually by our constitution, the queen is our head of state. So the queen is the one who sacked him. The governor general, who is no longer with us, the queen still is, uh, (laughs) but the queen gave him permission to do it. Now it was his choice. The queen is never going to say no. Yeah, Um, she is literally the titular head. Uh, But there's been a few videos going around saying, um, "Your Majesty, could you please help us in our current predicament and get rid of Scomo?" Did it back yeah, then? You did for it back nothing. then. Yeah. Could you do it now with yeah. the most incompetent prime minister, in, arguably in history? That's right. Right? So the the governor general sacked the parliament. Uh, yeah, it was sacked the government, and uh, he installed the leader of the opposition as the uh, interim prime minister, and then immediately called an election. And what was the line from Gough Whitlam? May God may save God us- save Australia. And no, I was actually may, can God may God save the Queen because nothing will save the governor general. And yeah. in fact, he was right. The Governor-General became a pariah in our society uh, very quickly. Yeah, that was a shit decision. Oh, it was. But, yeah, anyway, back to corruption, I guess it is. Yeah. It is one of those so, difficult things. You need the people to rise up and change it, right? You do. And, look, there's. Uh, we spent some time in Ecuador a few years ago on a holiday. And speaking to people in Ecuador, they were very proud of their current, and I don't think he still is. I have to look it up. Their current president, uh, to the point where they changed the constitution. Ecuador used to have this rule that I think it was two um, sessions, but it was 10 years. You couldn't be president for more than 10 years. So yeah. this guy was previously president. He went. He went off and, you know, he was already very wealthy. So that in itself helps that you don't need to be corrupt if you're already a squillionaire. <laughs> um, and he went off to the United States and he you know, worked in the IT sector and blah, blah, blah. Um, and he came back to Ecuador and Ecuadorians effectively by popular vote, changed the constitution. They held a referendum. They changed the constitution to change the law so that he could come back as uh, as president. And he yeah. did. Um, but it was only for a little time, wasn't it, well, to fix a few things? He, yeah, he came back and then yeah, he said, right, I'm done. Yeah, um, tapping out, and guys. He made some amazing social decisions and so on. And I wouldn't talk about that another time. This is about Australia, not Ecuador. But <laughs> hello to all my Ecuadorian friends. Um, but but in, in discussing that with people around Ecuador, and they were very happy to talk about their politics at the time because it was working for them. Um, they said that being the president of Ecuador is one of the riskiest jobs that you can possibly imagine. Because more than half of them in the history of Ecuadorian politics, more than half of them have been unseated either by being assassinated Mm. or by being sacked. 
Yeah. <laughs> and so, in that case, we don't like what the president's doing. We just shoot him. <laughs> and so, well, you would, there's I, many I'd countries like, that that happens in. I'd but. like to have a leader who doesn't want to be there. You know, who oh, yeah. has the yeah. skills to be there, but ultimately doesn't want to stay there. And this they don't want a, a lifetime leader. This yeah. is a big problem with um, the Roman Empire, right? Is oh, yeah. that quite often the best emperors that they had were the ones that didn't really want the job or didn't yeah. want to maintain it, yeah. right? And they were like, all right, I'm going to hand it over after a certain amount of time. The, the worst ones were the ones that, that, that wanted to get for it. Yeah. yeah. Next story I had, and we can probably turn this into two episodes because we're at an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, I've got a lot of good stories. I wanted to go through these. Winemakers have gotten really creative in Australia and they're salvaging smoke-tainted grapes yes, after the Australian bushfire. Did you I see know. this story? I did. Yeah. What a ripping story. Yeah. So, disastrous wine vintage from 2019, 2020. It's been horrible because the wine grapes have been tainted by smoke from the you know huge amount of bushfires, which yeah. have happened around a lot of the places that grow wine. Um, so, we've had many wine vines, you know, completely burnt out um, and those that weren't were smoke tainted and the smoke affected wine tastes like an ashtray yeah. effectively for obvious reasons. So, we had a winemaker named Mr. Mr. Cosned who's trialling three different techniques. So, he's been harvesting a, a few small batches of uh, grapes and he, he has these three sort of methods of harvesting, hand picking, chilling and whole bunch pressing which quickly removes the smoke-infused skins. Then he has pressing, leaving the skins on for a long time, which ends up being the worst-case scenario. Mm -hmm. And the other one was machine harvesting. So, the samples were all tested by a sensory panel to detect smoke taint. And the panel met weekly and sniffed something like 300 samples and marked them on a scale of 1 to 10. Um, and they helped determine the best method. And the first method was the best one, hand harvesting wine, white wine grapes, um, you know, chilling them, and then a whole bunch pressing them. The only problem was that you're down 50% yeah. of your production in terms of how quickly you can do it. Yeah, but 50% or no percent. Yeah, That's wanna, the trade-off. Yeah, the trade-off is we can either just throw, yeah, just churn these grapes back into the soil. G'day, mate. That was the first half of this episode of The Goss. If you would like to continue watching or continue listening to this episode, make sure that you sign up for the premium podcast or academy memberships at aussieenglish.com.au where you will get full access to these entire episodes of this series and much, much more. You can go check that out using the links below or just go to aussieenglish.com.au. Once again, thank you so much for joining me, mate, and I will see you next time. Peace. Peace.